Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic with providers Drs. Wood, Benyon, and Blotter, PA Jamie Grange, and PA Lindsay Humes, practicing ear, nose, and throat medicine, allergy services, and facial, plastic, and reconstructive surgery, 753-7880. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2014. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Mark Dillon, who's an Associate Justice in the Appellate Division of the New York State Supreme Court. His book, out from Utah State University Press, is Montana Vigilantes, 1863-1870, Gold, Guns, and Gallows. And Judge Dillon writes that the idea for the book originated during a family vacation in Montana, And when he was touring Virginia City and Nevada City, he wondered how conditions of life and property at the time could have been so dire as to compel law-abiding men to engage in acts of vigilantism against other men. How different those times and attitude were compared to what they are today. Yet these people were living under the same separation of uh, powers, same constitution. And, uh, of course, this brings up uh, very interesting questions and very timely questions about how... uh, uh, human nature uh, is, and our need for well-structured law governing how people uh, act in relation to each other. Story of Montana presents us, he writes, with how mankind behaves when there's no effective law in place for resolving disputes. Very interesting questions, very interesting history, and very timely, as vigilantism is going on as we speak in Nigeria, in Mexico, and other places. Mark Dillon, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tom. Appreciate you taking the time. I'd like to begin, and we'll loop back to it as we go along, uh, ripping the, these incidents from the headlines. Uh, just yesterday, uh, I, I heard on, on NPR, um, in vigilantism in northern Nigeria, uh, where the citizens got to wind of uh, a potential attack by Boko Haram and uh, armed themselves, were ready, and uh, in fact uh, repelled uh, the attack. And, of course, in Mexico, there are uh, vigilante groups who uh, are arising to uh, repel uh, drug cartels. In fact, there, some of these vigilante groups have been deputized as, uh, as federal uh, authorities. I wonder what your thoughts are, just generally. As you're, you've been thinking about these issues for quite a while with regard to our history in Montana. Uh, here it's happening around the world. Yeah. Well, um, they're difficult issues, of course, and uh, it's difficult to draw parallels between things such as what's happening in Nigeria and what's happening in in, in Mexico with what was happening in in Montana back in the 1860s, although in in a very, very general, broad sense, uh, what they do seem to have in common is that when you have um, groups of people who feel threatened by other people, and where government or law enforcement isn't adequate in order to protect them, then then people will, will take matters into their own hands. And, and that uh, may be what's happening in Mexico, and it may be happening uh, in Nigeria with those who uh, want to protect themselves uh, from, from Boko Haram. And it certainly it, happened in Montana. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems it, there is that human need for order, for for justice, for and, and uh, as most basic for protection, right? If you feel like the government authorities aren't doing something, uh, there's the temptation, at least, to take matters into your own hands. Correct. Correct. Um, and and there's a sense of outrage, and of course, you, as you say, parallels are somewhat dangerous. But especially in Nigeria, I, I think uh, maybe this would highlight where those lines are. It's very difficult. 
right? Uh, there's you outreach. You also have to, some, have to have something to protect. Yeah. So in Nigeria, it, I think it's lives that they're they're trying to protect. Right. Uh, in in Montana, it was gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, um, in the case of Nigeria, you, you know, you got schoolgirls, and that, that that hits at a very basic level, outrage, yep. outrage around the world. So I, I think they're probably, I'm guessing, some sympathy for you know, if you talk to most people, okay, in this case, vigilantism, maybe okay. Uh, the, and these are these are some issues that you're looking at in the book. Uh, tell me about, and you mentioned the price of gold, which was twenty dollars and sixty seven cents an ounce at, at that point. And, you and uh, twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents an ounce does not sound like a lot of money today. Gold today is trading somewhere around thirteen hundred dollars an ounce. Uh, but when you factor in the cost of living and, and inflation over the years, uh, twenty dollars and sixty-seven cents an ounce was was actually a considerable amount of money at the time. And mining for for gold in places like Montana and California and elsewhere, uh, there was a, there was enough of a financial incentive. At that price, to make it profitable for those who could who could find it and and pull it out of the ground, uh, it was a very different time in terms of of what our currency was too. Because back in in the 1860s, we weren't just on a gold standard; we were on a gold and silver standard. And the only type of money that circulated anywhere in the United States or its territories up until the Civil War was coins. Uh, it wasn't until the Civil War that the government proceeded with with what they called greenbacks, but what we call bills, where where the you know the the the, the paper money represents um, the full faith and credit of the government. But uh, back in the 1860s, uh, where where your currency was was gold and silver, you could hold a, a dollar coin in your hand, and it would contain enough grains of gold or enough grains of silver that you were actually holding one dollar worth of value. And the price of gold and silver was fixed by the United States government. So from year to year to year, that coin was the same dollar as time went on. And, and, so and, um, it was the time of the Civil War, and Lincoln had uh, enormous financial costs, bills that had to be paid in connection with the, with the, with the Civil War, and was looking for ways of, of increasing the money supply and being able to finance the costs of the war. And while having a gold and silver standard gives you a system of very sound money, um, the problem with it, as you went into the Civil War, was that, that your, your money supply was capped by the amount of gold and silver that existed above the ground and that could be coined into, into, into currency. So if there was to be a find of gold and silver somewhere of any significance, such as what happened in California with the gold rush in 1848, with a Comstock load in Nevada in 1858, which was one of the largest silver strikes ever in the world, uh, and in the case of Montana, the discovery of gold in, in 1862 and 1863. This was, this was wonderful timing for Lincoln to, to learn that there are these enormous gold deposits out in Montana. Uh, because uh, whatever whatever gold could be extracted from the ground could help increase the money supply and help finance the cost of the Civil War. And this, of course, uh, as usually happens, promotes people rushing to the area. Also, is an impetus to 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 accelerate the uh, assimilation of these territories into the United States. Yes, in fact, the reason that territories were created was that there would be the the, the discovery of of some resource 
somewhere that it would be in the interest of our country to get, and territories would be created so that the government could uh, get some legal jurisdiction over the area, uh, some taxing authority over the area, uh, some laws, uh, prevent uh, Canada or others from, from coming down and, and claiming jurisdiction over the land. So uh, definitely there was, there was a, a, an interest in the government in, in creating the territories which would later become states so that we could have the benefit of those resources. And I think we forget sometimes, you point this out in the book, that the, I think until 1864, when, when the territory was created, uh, until that time, these the people were going out of the United States when they went to Montana. And uh, and this was the time of the Civil War. They're they're coming. They're happy to escape those you know, that violence. Yeah, you had a lot of people that that made the conscious decision to leave the East Coast and to go out west to escape the death and the destruction of of the war. You also had a number of draft dodgers from the Union Army in the North and the Confederate Army in the South. Uh, more so from the South, it seems, than from the North. But but once you got out there, you were no longer in the official United States, and, and people that were living there were, were not considering themselves American. They took a great interest in what was happening in the United States. They would have their, their favorite side in the Civil War, whichever side that was, but, but they were not, in fact, Americans. Hmm. This, uh, and I'm thinking parallel to, um, uh, you know, to the Mormons coming out to Utah Territory. They, they left the United States in, in, in part to as they saw it, get some, some safety. Yeah. Uh, I guess that would, that would be parallel for a lot of people who came, came out. They, the, the United States sort of caught up with them, but they were leaving the, the U.S. Uh, was, the, was that division of the Civil War, was that a factor here? Did you have continuing Union versus Confederate? Yes, you did. People would, would, uh, would go out west, uh, but you'd, you'd still favor one side or the other in the Civil War, and passions were very high in those days not just in the East Coast, but out in the West as well. And politically, there was a spillover effect that um, those that, that favored the Confederacy in those days tended to, be, to de- be Democrats, and those that favored the Union tended to be Republican. So depending on what area of the West you're looking at and, and what concentrations you have from, from where people came from, uh, that would define um, which, which political party would have the upper hand. Mm-hmm. And you write, uh, uh, this is very violent, uh, places. Sometimes we, we have this romanticized vision of, of the West. Uh, you have a very stark, very interesting example. Uh, if, if a murder happened in a barber shop, the, the barber would just keep working. Yeah, <laughs> it wouldn't interfere with the business of shaving. Uh, that was a quote from a, a newspaper editor named Thomas Dinsdale. And, it, uh, you know, everyone had guns. And you walked around with your gun, and you'd have bullets in your gun, and you'd be ready to fire your gun on a moment's notice. Um, the guns were used for hunting. They were, they were used for protection, they, but they, they were just part of life. There wasn't really such a thing as gun control back in the 1860s if you lived out in one of these mining communities in, in, in the West. So um, there were a lot of tempers. There were a lot of arguments. Uh, you, you had communities that were, you know, nine to one or more male to female ratio, uh, a lot of testosterone, and uh, people getting into arguments over mining claims, a lot of alcohol, barroom fights, and and then you had you, you add to that mix loaded guns, and uh, they'd go off. So this was, in a certain sense, the norm. Uh, people just expected if you had a dispute, you would 
probably just handle it and maybe in a violent way, and, and that seemed to be okay. What what went beyond the pale? There there were some things that obviously went beyond the pale. Yeah. Um, well, after after the um, territory was uh, created, and there was a period of time before the territory was even created, but but when when Congress and and Lincoln finally created the Montana Territory, uh, they were so preoccupied with the Civil War that they neglected, and Lincoln in particular, neglected to appoint into the territory judges, uh, U.S. marshals that would be the police, and U.S. attorneys that would be the, the prosecutors. So you had the territory on paper, you had a governor, you had a legislature, but, but you didn't have any kind of, of law enforcement in the area. And meanwhile, in this, this lawless area where everybody had guns, where there was no courts, no prosecutors, no police. You had gold being extracted out of the out of the ground, and as we discussed, the the, the value then twenty dollars sixty seven cents an ounce was was considerable. And we didn't have banks. You 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 couldn't uh, drive your gold anywhere. There were no trains yet there for transporting anything. Uh, you certainly couldn't electronically transfer things to accounts. The only way of of moving your gold from point A to point B would be to put it in a, in a pouch and get on your horse uh, or, or get on a stagecoach, and, and the horses and the stagecoaches would go through these remote trails that would connect this town to that town. And um, unfortunately for the, for the people that, that would work weeks, months, perhaps a full year in order to accumulate their gold, um, they would be on these trails and not be protected. And because they would be in remote areas, they would be susceptible to, to crime, for, for criminals that would be laying in wait for them. Sometimes to travel from one part of the state to another, or territory to another, uh, it would be a two- or three-day journey. And there would be rest stations, uh, ranches, uh, similar to what, what rest stops are at interstate highways today, where you, where you could service your horse or change your horses, get a meal, maybe sleep for the night. And and there would be spies that would be uh, located at these various ranches who would know who was going where, with what, and when. And word would get back to a criminal element that was organized in the territory for the purpose of of, of robbing and, and even killing for the gold. And what people found, particularly in the fall of 1863, uh, but it had been ongoing before that, was that the rate of robbery and murder reached such a high proportion that uh, a number of other people decided, the law-abiding people decided that they had enough, and they, and they, have, to, they have to try to do something about this. Hmm. We're going to take a brief break. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, take a look at how this began, uh, and Mark Dillon has set the stage for us uh, here. Mark Dillon is Associate Justice in the Appellate Division of the New York State Supreme Court has a special interest in the history of lawmaking, law enforcement, and unauthorized justice in the Montana Territory of the 1860s. In fact, his book is Montana Vigilantes, 1863-1870, Gold, Guns, and Gallows. It's out from Utah State University Press. Very timely issues, as I've mentioned, uh, with vigilantism happening right now in Nigeria and Mexico, probably other places that uh, I've forgotten about or don't know about. Uh, we have an email from uh, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. I'll read that, and uh, we'll continue the story, fascinating story of Montana vigilantes following this break. 
For Joaquin Rodrigo, going blind as a young boy was part of what pushed him toward becoming a composer. But the standard method for writing music, pencil on paper, was never going to work for him. How he confronted that challenge and the sheer joy of music by Rodrigo on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 o'clock on UPR. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2014. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about vigilantism. There are circumstances, have been in our past. We're talking about uh, Montana Territory in the 1860s and the discussion today. When uh, people uh, see their duly authorized law enforcement is not doing the job, they take the matter into their own hands. It's happening as we speak in Nigeria, northern Nigeria. Citizens there uh, see the government not acting against Boko Haram, and they are acting themselves. In Mexico, it's happening as well. Here's a, an email from uh, Steve. It says, Tom, in your uh, teaser for Access Utah, you mentioned northern Nigeria's modern vigilantes. Also much in the news are Mexico's anti-drug vigilantes. The federal government has even deputized them. And also in the core news, uh, of course, are vigilantes of a different stripe in Bunkerville, not so far from here, but that's a different story, he says. And then he gives some links to uh, some of those stories. Thanks for that, Steve. And you reminded me I'd forgotten about the vigilantism happening in Mexico. We'll draw parallels, of course, as we go along. Mark Dillon is the author of this book, Montana Vigilantes. He's an associate justice in the appellate division of New York State Supreme Court. Mark Dillon, we were uh, you set the scene. Um, it's Montana Territory, 1860s, um, and uh, gold has been discovered. Uh, $20.67 an ounce. That doesn't seem like a lot today, but uh, it was a lot then. And people were getting robbed. Very violent time, but but some crimes were considered, uh, we have to take care of these. One, I guess, was, was robbery, taking your hard-earned gold. Um, so how did how did vigilantism uh, begin in the, in the territory here? Yeah, well, vigilantism was not the first resort once people realized that they had this problem on their hands. Uh, the first thing that they tried to do was uh, to pool some money together and hire sheriffs. And the jobs of the sheriffs were to um, to uh, to know who was traveling with gold and what the routes would be, and to provide some, some form of protection for them. And the sheriff would have deputies that were also involved in the process of providing protection for them. And when people would hire sheriffs in the Western communities back then, it, it, it was a different set of factors that you look at in choosing your person than we would use today in choosing, say, a, a police chief. I mean, if we were to hire a police chief in a town or a city today, we would want somebody with with some experience, somebody with some administrative skills, somebody, somebody that's responsible and honest. But back in those days, if you were going to hire sheriffs and deputy sheriffs in order to provide protection to travelers, what you're looking for is somebody that's an gunslinger, somebody that's a tough guy, somebody that has a lot of courage, uh, somebody that's not necessarily the most upstanding in the community. And if you were somebody being considered for sheriff and in the past you've committed some crimes, some assaults, maybe you've even murdered some people, that wasn't necessarily a bad thing to have on your resume. 
And the sheriff that was hired in Bannock in 1863 was a man by the name of Henry Plummer, who had just that kind of background uh, from his days in Northern California. He had, he had killed a number of people. Uh, he, he came to Montana. He, he had spent some time in San Quentin prison uh, for some of his crimes. Uh, but he got married in Montana, and, and he was elected to be the sheriff of the territory. But what people didn't understand at the time until later was that uh, once he became sheriff, he perverted his office for the sake of his own personal gain. Uh, certainly he did some of the responsibilities that sheriffs would have, serving process and some other administrative things. But, but uh, there, there's enough evidence, in my view, in history that, that he was the titular head of the criminal organization that was behind all the robberies and the murders that were occurring in the Montana Territory at the time. And he was in the perfect position to be the titular head of this because he knew who was traveling with what when. So it's, he's taking advantage of this. Sorry? He's taking advantage of the situation. Oh, he took advantage of the situation. I mean, <laughs> it's not the only time that somebody would get themselves in a position of some authority and then and then uh, use it to their their own advantage. But but there was a period of time when people weren't yet quick enough on the uptake to see yeah. that that he was uh, taking uh, advantage of his situation. So the, so what what came about was that despite the hiring of the sheriff and having the deputy sheriffs, the robberies and the murders continued. And having a sheriff really wasn't making any positive difference. So now you get to the point where people are starting to think about um, vigilantism. And what, what brings things to a head on that subject was that there was a murder of, of a very well-liked orphaned teenager named uh, Nicholas Tebolt at a ranch. He was uh, sent to this ranch to purchase some mules on behalf of a, a gentleman named Old Man Clark, and uh, the people at the ranch uh, decided to uh, uh, to uh, keep the gold dust that he brought to purchase these mules to kill him. Uh, the killing was rather brutal, and um, when his body was discovered, there was there was a lot of commotion in Nevada City, Montana, at the time over the murder of this boy. And uh, they had a trial of a gentleman named George Ives, uh, who was accused of uh, being the murderer. Um, this was a trial that was held in the public square. Uh, he was ultimately convicted, and he was hung within the hour or two of his conviction. But there, there was still a lot of unease about the rate of crime in the area. There was a distrust of juries because of, of some other uh, criminal proceedings that had resulted in acquittals prior to this particular trial. And a sense by a number of people in the area of Alder Gulch, Montana, that you, you can't rely upon citizen trials and citizen juries to, to contain the criminal element, that you had to have something more. Hmm. As you're telling this story, I'm <laughs> leaping forward to, you know, to, well, America, not too recent uh, past, and think it's, it, it takes a strong overlay of, of a justice system and confidence in that justice system, because we have today, uh, you know, jury trials that at least as it's portrayed in the media and what we can glean from that to, you know, you, you talked to a lot of people and they, they wouldn't have confidence in the outcome of, of that trial. But of course there, there there's that overlay of, of justice system. There's due process. It's, it's well established. And, and so we don't rush out and, and form vigilante groups. Right. Right. 
So the vigilante organization was formed um, in uh, the third week of December of 1863, just as this trial of George Ives was going on. And just after the trial, they put the completed work on creating the organization. And, and contrary to what the, the, the public perception might be, the, the vigilantism was not, not this mob that would just go out from here to there and, and do things. They, they were an organization. I'm not defending it, uh, but it was an organization that had a president, it had a treasurer, it had a secretary, it had bylaws, it had a bank account, and it had procedures that were to be followed for um, arresting individuals that were suspected of crimes and for them to then hold vigilante trials of those individuals. If you were found guilty of a crime at a vigilante trial, the only authorized sentence that they could impose would be death by hanging. They didn't have jails, and, and they didn't really have a mechanism for, for you know, taking in fine money. Uh, they, they couldn't put people on probation the way courts do today. There were no community service programs that you can go into the way courts will, will do today. So uh, if, you were, if you were arrested by one of these vigilante groups, and they would try you, and they wouldn't always try you. They were supposed to. But if you were arrested, uh, it was a very all-or-nothing proposition for you. Either you were going to be acquitted outright, or you'd be found guilty and hung, and there was no in-between. So uh, from the point of view of the vigilante committee, uh, I, I could imagine you can you know, say yes or no to this, but uh, they, I, I would imagine, were thinking, well, we don't have established law enforcement, so we're going to do the best we can and set up a system. Right. Exactly. And... So once they, once they had the system in place and they had several dozens of individuals that were volunteered and they all took an oath to be loyal to each other, uh, they then sent out a posse, an initial posse, to go to a particular ranch. This was the Rattlesnake Ranch, which was believed to be perhaps the hub of these, these ranches where, where there were spies that were providing information about travelers. And they went out there in order to question people that worked at that ranch. And they found a note which was warning the people that worked there to, to, to flee because the vigilantes were coming. So they knew they were on to something, and they, they continued searching the area, and they, they did come up with two, two gentlemen that worked there, a guy named uh, Red Yeager and another one named Brown, and they engaged in what we might call enhanced interrogation techniques with them, uh, far beyond waterboarding, uh, but uh, they were able to obtain from particularly Jaeger uh, information about the criminal organization that was operating in the territory. They had names, and they had places. And the names in particular included Sheriff Plummer as being the head of the organization. So in violation of the trial and bylaw procedures, uh, Brown and, and Yeager were hung. They were supposed to be taken back to Virginia City for a trial. There might have been some concern that if they did so, they could be ambushed on the way. And, and sometimes vigilantes would take the view that if it is so obvious that you're guilty, there's no need for a trial, and you can proceed directly to the hanging. So these two gentlemen were hung, and then the posse turned toward the southwest to go to Bannock, Montana, where Sheriff Plummer was at the time, in order to arrest and hang him and his deputies. Hmm. Uh, uh, quoting in the book, I can't remember who it, who it is, you quote, uh, 
I assume this is a member of the vigilante committee, um, as having the attitude that there's a distinction between mob violence, which, of course, everyone's against, and good, decent, orderly lynching. Yes. <laughs> as ironic as that all, that all sounds, there, there was a certain understanding amongst both the law-abiding folks and the criminal folks that if, if you were going to be hung, and let's assume you're guilty, that there was an acceptance of that, that, that those who, who were hung, and there were many dozens in the 1860s, that the book, and the book recounts each, each arrest, each trial, each story, each hanging. If, if you were to be hung, um, almost always that person would just bravely accept the, the, uh, the process. And it would be a little ritualistic. You'd be given a chance to have a last smoke or a last drink or to write a letter to a relative back east. But then once those ministerial things were taken care of, they would put the noose on you and do the job. Mm. In fact, there's a, a little quote you have at the beginning of each chapter. One of them said something, and I assume this is one of the vigilantes too, one of the men to be hung, uh, saying, you know, stop sniveling and take this like a man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the social so, expectation, I guess. So uh, 18, early 1864 was the bloodiest single period uh, for vigilante hangings in, in um, Montana, and uh, as you got further into 1864, you, you still didn't have judges, prosecutors, uh, marshals, uh, but, but you did have the back broken to this criminal conspiracy. They, they went out and they found the people that were involved and hanged most of them. Some of them escaped the territory, but they hanged most of them. And they, the, the vigilantes were then faced with a choice of whether they could declare victory and say that we've hung these people, now we'll go back to citizen trials for anything further that happens, or they could have remained a presence as law enforcers in society. And they uh, actually remained a presence in law enforcement uh, throughout 1864. But because the criminal conspiracy had been broken, their presence now increased into other areas of criminal justice, so that if, if there were barroom shootings, for instance, or if there was somebody engaged in drunken disorderly conduct, or if there was somebody that just in, was involved in an assault, the, the vigilantes would get involved in those types of things, even though it didn't involve murder, even though it didn't involve the robbery of gold. Uh, we have an email. Um, we'll get to this uh, next. We're talking with Mark Dillon, who's author of Montana Vigilantes, Gold, Guns, and Gallows, a History of Vigilantism in the Montana Territory in the 1860s and 1870s. And as we've been pointing out, uh, this is very apropos to today, very timely, vigilantism happening right now in Nigeria and Mexico and other places. And uh, the question that uh, Judge Dillon had as he was uh, having a vampification in uh, Montana was, how does this happen? What uh, For people who have a constitutional history, at least, they've come out of America, but same constitutional history as everyone else, um, what leads people to do this? Something in human nature. And, and he's looking at the legal history of this as well, one of the contributions of, of this book. Uh, so, uh, Mark Dillon, here is Julie in uh, Cedar City, 
She's obviously studied some of these issues, and uh, she says, As I've been listening to the discussion this morning, I've been waiting to hear the speaker address the large body of scholarship that questions the motives of the Montana vigilantes. Historians Mather and Boswell, in particular, have carefully examined diaries and journals for evidence that gangs of robbers were indeed attacking travelers and have found that the, the claims of Dimsdale, who was not in the area at the time, were much exaggerated. They also point out the political divide between the sheriff Henry, Henry Plummer, who was hanged quickly and secretly one cold January night, and those who hanged him as well as the way they profited from the vigilantism later. My question for the author is how he took into account such evidence in formulating his theory. By the way, I'm from the south, southwest Montana, so I'm aware of the descendants of both those on both ends of the hangman's ropes are still debating this issue. A mock trial conducted some years ago found there wasn't enough evidence to justify the hangings. That's the Julie in Cedar City. Yes, no, it's a terrific question, and I'm glad that Julie wrote in. And the uh, the, the Mother and, and Boswell uh, view of this, which I, I refer to as the revisionist view of, of whether it was the Montana vigilantes that went overboard and whether Sheriff Plummer was, was innocently hung. That is something that, that certainly I, I address, and I think very fairly, in, in the book. Uh, the reference in the email to the mock jury was back in, I think it was 1993, a um, citizen's jury was um, uh, created. It was part of a, high, uh, a school project where the uh, students uh, played the roles of uh, prosecutor, defense attorney, and, and the witnesses and we had adult jurors and an actual judge that presided over the mock trial and it resulted in a six to six hung jury no pun intended uh... so that uh, sheriff palmer was not convicted based on the evidence presented in that case of uh, having committed any crimes but uh... I, I certainly do pay attention to this revisionist view i discuss it and uh... i i I didn't write the book with with the intention of trying to poke holes in the revisionist view, but but there is some evidence that that I present, which in my view uh, shows that the traditional view of Henry Plummer's uh, guilt is is stronger than the, the revisionist view that he was not a guilty person. Hmm. And uh, Julie's point, and I'm I'm sure this this happens and adds spice to Montana history uh, descendants of people on both ends of hangman's ropes are still debating these issues. Oh, yes. Yes. It's a fascinating subject area for uh, Western American history. And and you bring it forward. You mentioned in the book uh, there's a vigilante parade that is still happening in Helena. Well, that's what they call it, yes. Mm-hmm. And it, it honors the, the traditions and, and cultures of the of that period of time when Montana was, was being settled. By the way, I'd, I'd like to bring this into, um, you know, since we're, in Utah, I'd like to bring it into Utah. You, you mentioned a couple of cases that involve Utah. One where they, I think they put a bounty on a, on a fellow, found him in, in Utah territory. Another where they hung someone in Salt Lake. Yeah, uh, there are actually three things about Utah that I, that I can mention. One, one is that if they became aware of somebody that they felt had committed a serious crime in Montana, because the vigilantes operated outside of the traditional law, uh, they weren't at all respectful of territorial boundaries. So they would, they would go into other territories, not just Utah, but they also went into Idaho, and, and they would either capture people and bounty hunt you back into Montana for your trial and your hanging, or they would, they would just find you in Utah uh, or in Idaho, it happened there as well, and just hang you there 
despite having any authority, uh, and, and certainly not outside their territory, they, they had no authority. And, and another example that involves Utah history is that there was, believe it or not, a member of the Montana Vigilante Organization who was civilly sued in a Utah court for damages by an attorney who had represented some of the criminal element in, in Montana in, in the civilian trials. And uh, he claimed that his, his reputation was damaged and defamed. And the case was tried. The judge threw out the first verdict. It was retried. And, and but, but both cases, this attorney won a judgment in his favor of several thousand dollars. Mm. It's the only time that a vigilante was ever in a court defending his conduct in any way, shape, or form. And what ended up happening was the uh, vigilantes got wind of this and made it clear that if this attorney ever tried to collect his money, that um, he, he would be, in fact, he was indicted for crimes in Montana, for which he would certainly be hung. And in exchange for avoiding that threat of being arrested and hung, the attorney decided to waive his receipt of the money that he had won in the Utah court. Hmm. Before we go to break, we'll take another brief break. Uh, by the way, we're talking with uh, Mark Dillon, author of Montana Vigilantes. Uh, just to follow up, a uh, final follow-up on Julie's email. You write in your preface that you had an interesting problem in you know, parsing out what actually happened because the, the, the richest vein of, of research here are journals and diaries from people on the vigilante committee. People on the other side, of course, were dead. Right, uh, so because so they you, were dead, they never had the opportunity to write down their side of the story. So you have so to approach have this to with approach some skepticism. Your research yeah. with uh, the understanding that that it might be lopsided going into it. And so you, you just parse out the best you can um, and and have healthy skepticism of what they're saying, and and, and that's yeah, how you proceed. Yeah, you have to have a skepticism. It's easier when one source conflicts with another source. And you can look at, at what one person says or what another person says and, and, and figure out what makes more sense or what would be consistent with other evidence. But, but certainly when you're, when you're looking back 150 years and uh, a number of the, of the people that have knowledge didn't survive to ever recount it later, yeah, that's, that's a, a uh, problem that all historians have looking mm-hmm. at this period. When we come back from the break, we're going to tackle the... I guess probably the central issue. That's the, the idea of due process, which, as uh, Judge Dillon points out, is it's in the Magna Carta. It comes all the way through down to us through our Constitution. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll ask, were fatal mistakes made? Necessarily fatal because the punishment was, was death in every case. More following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, improving communities through ideas in action, online at utahhumanities.org. And Cash Arts presents Jake Shimabukuro, the American ukulele virtuoso and composer, combining elements of jazz, blues, funk, and other genres. Monday, March 11th at 7.30 p.m. at the Ellen Eccles Theater. Ticket and seating information at cashearts.org. UPR's Spring Pledge Drive will be March 21st through the 28th, and we need volunteers. It's your chance to get involved and help us keep bringing you the radio you love. We'll walk you through the process of taking a pledge when you first arrive, so don't worry if it's your first time or if it's been a while since you've been in. We'll also have food and drink options available throughout the drive, and you'll have the opportunity to meet the staff, see our studios, and help make it all happen. 
you can sign up for available hours through our volunteer form at upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2014. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the 1860s, um, in Montana Territory, there were uh, several hangings. In fact, the tens, uh, I'm not sure how, how many. Uh, these were perpetrated by vigilante committees, citizens who saw themselves as law-abiding, and in the absence of law enforcement and regular judicial system, they felt that they needed to control the uh, harsher criminal element. And uh, so if you were captured by the vigilante committee, you would have, a, uh, in most cases, a, a trial. If you're found guilty, the only punishment was death. As one of the vigilantes pointed, I think as Dimsdale pointed out, we didn't have penitentiaries. But, you know, it's, it's, if we're going to punish somebody, it's going to have to be by death. Um, and the author of the book, Montana Vigilantes, is Mark Dillon. He has an interest in the law, of course, as an associate justice in the appellate division of the New York State Supreme Court. And uh, he's uh, done a historical analysis of this, also legal analysis of what happened. And so that's what I want to get to next, uh, Mark Dillon. Uh, this idea of due process, and you write as you you wondered as you toured Virginia City on that family vacation, the genesis for this book, how could people uh, feel compelled to do this, given that they had the same uh, history of a democratic government, they had the same history of the Constitution, which includes, of course, as a key component, due process. Correct. And the Organic Act, which was passed by Congress, which created the Montana Territory, specifically said that the United States Constitution would govern in the Montana Territory. And that would, of course, include the amendments to the Constitution, the First Amendment, right to free speech, for instance, uh, the Fifth Amendment, the Due Process Clause, the Sixth Amendment, right to counsel clause, the Eighth Amendment, which is the right against cruel and inhuman uh, punishment. So the Constitution was very much in place. Now, even in the eastern United States, it wasn't as fully developed as it is today with respect to the, to the routine rights that we know and, and protect. But in Montana at the time, uh, they certainly departed from even what the, the legal norms were in the eastern United States at the time uh, in terms of due process protections. Uh, there, there wasn't much in the way of due process. You, you had um, forcible, coercive interrogations of suspects. Uh, you had individuals that would be hung without trials. You had uh, individuals that would be uh, tried without the benefit of any type of an attorney representing their interest. And uh, it, it, it went on for many years. Now, in, in the Virginia City, in Nevada City area of Montana, uh, Lincoln finally did appoint into the territory uh, a chief judge by the name of Hezekiah Hosmer, who I have a lot of admiration for. Because when he came to Virginia City, he, he, tried, he tried to use his authority to do away with vigilantism and to create a, a better system of due process for those accused of crimes. And what he did is he assembled a grand jury, and he appears to have deliberately placed onto the grand jury certain prominent members of the vigilante organization. And he instructed the grand jury in his charge that while nobody will be prosecuted for any prior vigilante conduct, that if it continued in the future, they would be prosecuted for future vigilante conduct. And the vigilantes really had no choice but to give the court system an opportunity to work. They had a lot of respect for Judge Hosmer, 
And for the most part, Judge Hosmer was able to tamp down any continuation of vigilantism in that region of Montana in the years ahead. But a different story developed in an area that is now known as Helena, the the state's uh, capital. There, a judge was uh, sent in by the name of Lyman Munson. And Munson was a Yale-educated Connecticut patrician. He believed in the slow, procedural, methodical forms of, of trials and justice. And the people in that part of the state really didn't care for his type of methodical justice. They wanted court proceedings that would be firm and fast and and fatal, usually. So he didn't command in Helena the level of respect that Judge Hosmer commanded in Virginia City. And as a result of Munson really not having respect from the population, he was a square peg in a round hole, um, the vigilantism continued in Helena for several years, from about 1865 to 1870. And over the course of those years, there were dozens of of vigilante hangings. And in some cases, not all of them were were guilty people. Hmm. We do have another email. Uh, This is uh, someone uh, bringing us forward to a different kind of, you consider this vigilantism, I suppose. Uh, Glenn says, how about one of the more famous modern vigilantes, Bernard Goetz? The uh, New York subway shooter circa 1980s, and uh, if you don't remember, uh, listeners uh, in New York, he uh, shot four young black men when they allegedly tried to mug him, um, and he was uh, found not guilty. Uh, Yeah, well, the Bernie Goetz case was a very high-profile case at the time. Uh, His nickname was the Subway Gunman. Uh, It uh, happened in New York City. I'm about an hour and a half north of New York City uh, on this phone call. And I've been asked about that, and I've also been asked about the Trayvon Martin case a couple of years ago in Florida. And those are more difficult parallels to draw, because in those cases you're talking about a single individual engaged in a single action, as opposed to an organized vigilante uh, group that uh, has uh, you know, a particular broader goal. I, guess so that, I think it's very difficult mm-hmm. to draw those parallels with individuals. Right. Uh, it, I guess the impulse is that you know you you're essentially taking the law into your own hands, uh, or you could call it self protection in, in those cases. Yeah. Uh, you recount in the book there there were some fatal mistakes made by these vigilante groups. It pe- appears to be based on the evidence that I was able to develop. There were uh, two or three instances at least where uh, an individual was hung that appears to have been innocent. One very quick example is Leander Johnson, who was believed to have stolen cattle from a rancher. And according to a doctor that lived in the area, after the hanging had occurred, the cattle eventually uh, had wandered back to (laughs) where they had been living and weren't stolen by anybody. Uh, There was also a very controversial hanging of a Chinese gentleman by the name of Ah Chow. Uh, There was a lot of uh, ethnic prejudice back in those days against Orientals, and uh, Chow was accused of a murder. It's very unclear whether or not he committed it. But um, but there is some some basis for believing that he might have been innocent. Uh, he might have been involved in merely trying to protect uh, a woman. Uh, the incident went awry. He ran away. Vigilantes caught him and hung him. Uh, there was no trial, and and he may not have been guilty. Mm. Highlights highlights the importance of due process. So at least you know to try to eliminate these mistakes. Exactly. Uh, I want to end. We just have a, about a minute left with a uh, quote you have at the end of the book. You bring it back to this this idea of price of gold, and in, in some cases, <laughs> gold being more esteemed than human life, and you quote Sir Thomas More. 
Uh, well, it seemed to like a, a fitting quote, because as you go through the, the entirety of the book, um, one, one thing that, that seems to always be driving the, the action is, uh, and I don't want to say always, but in many instances, was, was the fact that you had a gold community here, people, people mining for the gold, working very hard to get the gold, transporting the gold, using the gold, stealing the gold, murdering for the gold, 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 gold. And uh, in, in many instances, you had, you had all of these, these killings, whether by criminals against victims or vigilantes against criminals, and it all seems to, to come out of that common thread, that it was the gold that was at the root of what was driving society and bringing out some of the, you know, the, the less admirable aspects of human nature and which contributed to these killings. Mark Dillon is author of Montana Vigilantes. It's out from Utah State University Press. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, and thank you to the listeners. And, uh, yes, thanks to listeners for responding uh, to the program. Very interesting questions. Hope you join us tomorrow for Access Utah. In the meantime, thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Climate change affects more than just the weather and the news cycles. Vast ecological changes are creeping upon us like a slowly rising proof. And our food, so dependent on a narrow range of factors, including temperature, rain, and changing ecosystems, is under the grim auspices of this slow threat. In the U.S., we certainly aren't in any imminent danger of vacant grocery store shelves or empty bellies. But we and our kids are going to have to make adjustments. Moving farming to higher and cooler latitudes and accepting the fact that some places may find it harder to grow anything at all. Utah's peaches are one of the big draws of roadside fruit stands every summer. Both Brigham City and Herkin have held peach days for more than 100 years as a tribute to the sweet-fleshed fruit. Our hot days and cool nights give us a good climate for growing peaches. It's actually the number of cold nights that signals to the peach tree to start production in the spring. If peach trees don't experience enough chill during the wintertime, they get confused and don't bloom properly. And if there's no bloom, there's no harvest. As our climates change, so will that predictable chilling. Even if plant breeders create peach varieties that need less chilling, there's another problem. Peach trees yield less fruit when it gets too hot in the summer, and they lose their blooms to unpredictable freezes in the spring, other factors that come with the unpredictability of climate change. Now moving further from home, when thinking of climate change, people tend to consider the arc of centuries, but in the case of the Cavendish banana, its demise may come within a few short decades. Bananas are more than a sweet potassium-loaded snack. Grown throughout the tropics and subtropics, bananas are a source of food, nutrition, and income for millions of rural and urban households. They are a staple crop in many countries. In Uganda, Rwanda, and Burundi, people consume 3 to 11 bananas per day as part of their basic nutrition. And in Uganda, the local word for bananas, matuk, is also the word for food. A big challenge for banana cultivation with warmer temperatures is the spread of pests and disease. Agricultural experts caution that the most common type of bananas may actually go extinct due to a deadly tropical disease 
sweeping across crops around the world. The Panama disease originated in the 1950s. It's a fungus that attacks a plant's roots. It can't be chemically controlled, and a particular strain is seen as a threat to the Cavendish bananas that grow the world over. So far, the only way of containing the disease is by quarantining large swaths of farmland, but it has already spread to Africa, Asia, Australia, the Middle East, and Central America. Experts fear that if the Panama disease reaches South America, the Cavendish banana is doomed. A way to save bananas could be in the form of banana trees from Madagascar. They're wild species immune to the Panama disease, but also inedible. And researchers are trying to create a hybrid of two species to produce an infection-resistant strain. The hitch? There are only five mature Madagascar banana trees in existence today. So your kids may never know the deep comfort of biting into a warm piece of banana bread. And their kids may only occasionally enjoy the unparalleled lusty bliss of biting into a fresh and ripe local peach at the end of a hot summer season. And for everything else on our plates, over the next century, we'll just have to hope for smart science and a society willing to change and the survival of wild banana trees. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.